all I can do is focus on the pieces that I can control. And this is one of the things that in negotiation that I see a lot of people not doing effectively. People get frustrated and angry because they are trying to make their counterpart do something or they're being manipulative about it and then trying to get them to think that it was their idea. And that's just unfortunate because we've been taught that this idea of negotiation is, okay, I, I have this stuff and I have to protect it and I can't give it away. And so I'm going to make you work really hard for it and maybe even beg for it in order for me to give it to you. And then I'm gonna make it seem like it's the worst possible thing on the planet that I gave it to you. And I'm like, but what if I just go, okay, here it is. What of what I have can I share with you? Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. How do you feel about the word negotiation? You know, when most of us hear that word negotiation, we usually think of tense conversations, fighting for what you deserve and a kind of a battlefield mindset. Yet what if that whole concept, that whole way of thinking about negotiation as a form of combat meant that you never actually got what you want? What if treating it as a zero-sum game with one winner and one loser prevented the most valuable outcomes of all from ever even being discussed? My guest today believes that negotiation is the opposite of combat. Christine McKay is the founder and CEO of Venn Negotiation, a company through which she turns clients into world-class negotiators. As a powerhouse negotiator, Christine has worked with roughly half of the Fortune 500 companies on the planet, negotiating billions of dollars worth of deals. More often than not, from what most people would have presumed was the weaker side of the table. She is also the author of Why Not Ask, a conversation about getting more, a step-by-step -step guide to no longer giving up on what you really want, simply because you don't know how to ask for it. However, incredibly, that resume is not the most amazing thing about Christine. For that, you need to rewind a couple of decades to when Christine was a homeless single mother surviving on welfare. Now, how she went from that situation to eventually earning an MBA at Harvard University and then on to becoming one of the most globally sought negotiators on the planet is one that Amazon, if you're listening, would make one blockbuster of a movie. Now, in this episode, we discuss her journey from a homeless single mother to a globally sought after negotiator. The key mistakes most people make in the negotiation process especially when you start out feeling like David against Goliath. 
why you can't negotiate in the past, only in the present. I'm going to leave this one here, but it is huge and it is being added to the post-it note reminders on my desk. The power of creating your own advisory board. Yes, even if you are currently a team of just one. Basically, why simply saying the phrase, I need to check this with my board of advisors, completely changes the entire tone of a conversation. Why no is a complete sentence. And how uncomfortable that makes most of us feel. And by most of us, I kind of just mean me. And finally, why you need to know your values before you start negotiating your value. And what I got out of this conversation was kind of pulling back any belief that I have in the myth that negotiation has to equal combat. That somehow in order to get what you want, you need to enter into the arena, be prepared to roll up your sleeves and fight. You know, sometimes that might be true. But more often than not, there's a subtext there that first you need to understand. You know, both sides of any table have needs, wants, desires, and boundaries. Show that you understand the other sides and suddenly combat can become conversation, which becomes collaboration, which eventually becomes consensus. You know, what if every negotiation not only gave you what you wanted, but left the relationship in a stronger place than when it began? Now, that has got to be the opposite of a battlefield mindset. This year is the year you want to take your journey in influence to the next level. Hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven core questions that, quite honestly, I use with every consulting client I ever work with and that I have found hands down to be the most powerful when it comes to showing up and standing out at a whole new level. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to pour a cup of tea. My newsletter Influence Insider also gives one bite-sized tool, strategy or mindset shift per week, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto my website, juliemasters.com to become an insider. But for now, grab whatever caffeinated beverage you're loving right now or just plug in and hit the road, safely of course, and enjoy the powerhouse that is Christine McKay. Welcome to the podcast, Christine McKay. So lovely to have you here today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the more I went down a a rabbit hole with your work, the more kind of fascinated and intrigued I became from your story to your skills to the things that you've learned. And so, you know, enough of me talking about it. Let's jump into it. I'm going to kick off with the question that I always kick off with, which is, is there an idea right now that's having a lot of impact or influence on your thinking? And it can be related to your field of expertise. It can be unrelated to your field of expertise. Is there something that has just grabbed hold of you and won't let go? Uh, Yes, actually. And it is really about the role of emotion in business and in life. Um, I feel that we, we spend so much time convincing ourselves to control or manage emotion instead of feeling the emotion and acting in spite of it. And so, and, and it certainly relates heavily into the work that I do. 
that spending a lot of time helping people understand uh, emotion and being able to label it in a way that allows them to take action in a way that's contrary to perhaps to how they may have ever taken action before. So that's pretty exciting stuff for me right now. Can you give me an example of that in play? You know, what emotion that may arise and what we would usually do versus what we could do with it? Sure, I'll use an example. So I was in a negotiation a few months ago and we'll call him a southerly gentleman uh, said to me, he said, I don't know why anyone would ever hire a woman to negotiate. Everybody knows women can't negotiate. So I felt a few things. <laughs> I started feeling a few things. I started feeling a lot of a few things. But in the moment, I said, all right, I'm starting to feel, um, I'm feeling diminished and demeaned and I'm starting to feel angry and well, anger, there are 48 synonyms. Is this to anger. you talking to your, is this you Myself. talking to yourself? Okay. Yeah. So this isn't it, you verbalizing no, out loud. Is, right. And so I'm talking to this and this is split second, by the way, this is not like this long drawn out thought process. You didn't ask it for just, a pause. No, or... <laughs> no. So, but I, I start evaluating what am I actually feeling? There are 48 synonyms for anger in the English language. 48 synonyms. It ranges from anything from I'm feeling peeved and irked to I'm feeling rageful or murderous. And then there's 40, 44 other ones in between that. And so I started connecting with what emotion am I feeling? And then I asked myself the question, how would I typically behave? Well, usually I would, you know, there was a time when I would have gotten super defensive and I maybe would have gotten aggressive. I would have said something that may have been intentionally hurtful, but it would have been a reactionary thing to, I would have been reacting to whatever, to whatever at the time I had labeled as anger. And instead I said, well, that's not going to serve me very well in this situation. So how do I want to act in spite of how I'm feeling. And so I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? Right. So now I've taken myself out of my emotion and now I've engaged a completely different part of my brain. So I've gone from the back of my brain where the emotion center sits to the forward part of my brain where our large logic center sits. So I've moved myself away from the emotion. So now I'm distancing myself from the emotion. And now I can choose how I'm going to act. So I asked a question. Do you mind if I ask you a question? To which he, of course, said, of course, fine. I said, what reaction were you hoping to achieve by making those statements? Ooh. And he, and he, well, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? I said, well, they were inflammatory statements and clearly you were hoping that I would react in a specific way. What way were you hoping that I would react so that I can decide now if I want to react that way or not? Or we can just assume this is a big mistake and we can move on. I, I want to pause you there because there's so much. There was so much in there. So we've got the moving from the back part of your brain, like the primitive fight or flight. What is, what is the emotion that I'm going to let hijack me or that is going to hijack me in this moment? 
So you've got a conscious decision to move from that to the front part of your brain, which is if I ask a question, I know that engages a part of my brain that distances me from a hijacking emotion. But it also simultaneously takes some power back in that moment because you haven't reacted, you have responded, and you have also placed taken the emphasis of from, ooh, what's she going to do, to, oh, what's he what's he going to say? It's, it's like that moment contains so much. It is to me, it is the ultimate power. I mean, a lot of people in negotiation talk about the concept of power and leverage. And I was talking to somebody who is an investor in a company that sells to Walmart, a huge big box retailer, mostly in the United States. And they're very well known for being super aggressive negotiators when it comes to price. They haggle very hard on price. They change their people out all the time so that they don't have the history. And this particular investor said to me, he's like, well, I know that Walmart, we're taking a bath on this deal because Walmart has all the power and leverage. And my response was, Walmart has the power and leverage because you chose to give it to them. Power and leverage, in my experience as a negotiator for 30 years, comes from what I choose to do. I only lose power and leverage if I voluntarily acquiesce that. That's such a different mind frame than the mind frame we usually go into negotiations or high stakes conversations with, which is um, what will be taken from me? You know, the predominant thought, what will, what, will, what will someone try and take from me in this room? Um, and what do I want to take from them? So this flip from not what will be taken, what will be taken from me in this room to what am I prepared to offer up? What am I prepared to willingly, abundantly and consciously give? That, I mean, that's power, that's choice. And that comes with a, like, you can even feel the difference just watching you right now and listening to you, you know, there's a gravity. Like you dipped into a gravity just then when you were talking that was amazing to watch. I'm going to keep going with this, on this rabbit hole here. Talk to me about how you do that. So how you make that flip from what I'm scared to lose and what might be taken from me to what I am willing to give and what I want to create. So I always talk about how there are really only three steps in negotiation. And the first one is assessing. And you, there are three things that you have to assess in every negotiation. This is, I don't care if you're negotiating with your spouse, your kids, or for a multi-billion dollar transaction. These are the same in all of these negotiations. And the three things you have to assess are you, your counterpart, and the situation you're negotiating, you, them, and it. And one of the problems that most people have, right, is that there's, there's one constant in every negotiation I've ever done, and that's me. I am the only constant. You are the only constant in every negotiation you have done. Your negotiations, my negotiations succeed and fail based on what I do in those moments. We are not taught to analyze ourselves in a way that connects our physical response with our emotional response. 
right? So, you know, like I said, people constantly say, control your emotions, manage your emotions. You cannot control your emotions. You cannot manage your emotions. Emotions are an involuntary response to previous experiences, but you can recognize those responses. The piece that people also disconnect is they don't recognize that the body has, has, has muscle memory. Well, I can sit and go, oh, dang it. My face just contorted into that look that my mother does. Oh, I hate that look on my face, right? I can do that. I can, I can sit and go, oh, I shifted my, sh my left shoulder is, or my right shoulder is slightly higher than my left shoulder. Oh, that means this normally, right? This, that's, a, that's a behavior response. Or if I get really nervous, I, I'll play with my fingers all the time. I'll, my fingers constantly are moving. I am, you know, I'm one of those people that pump their feet all the time, right? So I, I pay attention to the physiological response that my body has from muscle memory to the emotion that is being expressed so that then I can be aware I can, I, because, you know, depending on who you ask in martial arts, you know, some people say the head leads the body. Some people say the hips lead the body, but there's a part of our body heads or hip, either one, depending on who you are, um, that lead the rest of the body. You can watch somebody at their hips or at their head and you go, Oh, they're going to move left or they're going to move right. Right. Well, the same is true with emotion. Our face registers the emotion before we even notice or are aware that the emotion is coming, right? So if we learn to recognize the physiological response, I mean, Paul Ekman made, I mean, he's like the father of micro expressions, right? And, you know, and people have studied expressions and body language and all of that stuff for years now. And if we get good at understanding how we project, how our body projects our emotion, then we can start to recognize, oh, dang, my face just did that mom look. And I don't like that mom look. I'll even make fun of myself in a, when I'm in a negotiation and say, oh, I'm so sorry. My mom look just came out. Let's talk about that for a minute. Right. Because why not make it a levity? Why not make it funny? Why not make it you know, it, it's like, okay, my mom has a really severe look sometimes. I'm a very intense person. I can look very severe. Well, let's just acknowledge that. Let's laugh about it and say, now what are we going to do about this thing that caused me to have this, this mom look, right? <laughs> you know? And how disarming would that be? Like if I was in a negotiation with you, if I had come armed, which again is another conception about negotiation, you know, come armed. If I've come armed and suddenly we're laughing about your mom face, you know, there's, there's a moment of, there's a momentary dropping of arms that happens there. Absolutely. And how amazing would it be if we quit showing up armed for a negotiation and we sat down prepared to have a conversation about our relationship? Mm. Because mm. that's really all negotiation is is a conversation about our relationship. This interview is a conversation about a relationship, a multi-billion dollar transaction. The Elon Musk deal with Twitter is a conversation about a relationship. One can argue whether it was effective or not, but it's still a conversation about a relationship. You know, going and buying a cup of coffee from your favorite coffee shop is a conversation about a relationship. And 
it, you know, I cut my teeth on negotiation in Southeast Asia when I was in my mid and late twenties at a time when there were just no women anywhere, um, in business in Southeast Asia. And I had to learn how to become effective without making a lot of noise, without going in like a bull in a China closet, without being the stereotypical American, let alone the stereotypical American woman at the time, right? I had to find a softer way of doing it, but do not make, I don't want anybody listening to make the mistake that softer means less powerful or less potent because it doesn't. There's a, there's a juxtaposition that I'm playing with in my head at the moment. And I was laughing with somebody the other day, just yesterday, actually, I was being interviewed for a podcast and she said, how do you adjust your state? And I said, you know, often I'll find pictures that kind of represent the state that I'm hoping to bring out more of in my life. And I'll laminate those pictures. I'm a, I'm a widow. I look at things in the shower. And so I'll laminate those pictures and I'll put them up in the shower as just a reminder of what this particular thing looks like. And the one that I'm playing with a lot at the moment is the concept of fierce grace. Like what does a sense of grace and softness as in receptivity and openness look like when you combine it with a sense of fierce? And, you know, that is, I think, a very unexplored territory especially I think, well, actually, no, I was about to say, especially for women, but I think, you know, for women, one side of it is unexplored. The fierce side is, is predominantly unexplored. And for men, I think the grace side is potentially, you know, predominantly unexplored. If you look at cliches, but what does that look like for you when those two words or whatever words you use come together? I love those two words together. I think that, um, for I mean, I've been going, I've been going on a really in interesting journey the last little over a year now. And, um, I've had to find, I was never very good at grace. I wasn't, I wasn't shown a lot of grace in growing up. I wasn't, I, I didn't have a lot of mo role models around grace and it's been a, a beautiful journey to explore what grace means in my world and, you know, letting go, not, not fighting. I mean, I, I, when I think of that, um, the, that term fierce grace, I, I think, I, I think of myself kind of always, I used to always swim, try to swim against the current. It was always this like fight, man. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't fighting for it, it wasn't worth having. That was what my mentality was. And, and then I just hit this point where I was like, I was just exhausted from that. It was just like, this is just, this is just draining. And, and somebody who um, is a, both a friend and we were colleagues, um, he said to me one day, he's like, why do you just fight us? Why do you fight so hard? And it, and it just stuck with me. And, and so about a little, almost a year and a half ago, I was like, what happens if I stop swimming against the current? What happens if I let go of that last branch and that last rock? What happens if I stay in the middle? 
and I don't keep swimming to the edge to try to get in or out, get out and then get back in. What if I just stick to the center and I go with the flow? What happens then? What would my life look like if I didn't constantly try and exhaust myself in the process? How, how could it be different? How could the same result be achieved? But how could I have a radically different experience of things? And, and the only reason I paraphrase you there is because it's a question that I have also been exploring this year. I can't say that, you know, I, I have any incredible conclusions yet, but I have hints at mm. I don't, I, I mean, I, when I think about it, it's, I, I'm falling in love with the journey and not caring about the destination, which, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, we have our goals and I, trust me, I have my goals sitting right in front of me. I have like, you know, sales targets and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I have all that. I have my vision of where I'm going and all that. But to be honest, I have no control over whether somebody buys something from me or not. That decision is not in my control. All I can do is do marketing, do, do sales, get good at that. Get I, All I can do is focus on the pieces that I can control. And this is one of the things that in negotiation that I see a lot of people not doing effectively. People get frustrated and angry because they are trying to make their counterpart do something they're, or they're being manipulative about it, trying to coerce them into doing something and then trying to get them to think that it was their idea. Um, and, and that's just unfortunate to me because we, we focus so much on one. We've been taught we, through movies and politics and books and all sorts of things that this idea of negotiation is, okay, I, I have this stuff and I have to protect it. I have to hold it really, really close to me and I can't give it away. And so I'm going to make you work really hard for it and maybe even beg for it um, in order for me to give it to you. And then I'm going to make it seem like it's the worst possible thing on the planet that I gave it to you. And I'm like, but what if I just go okay, here it is. What, what, what of what I have can I share with you? What can I share with you? I've had amazing experiences and incredible growth opportunities, amazing and frustrating mistakes and failures, right? That are, there are tons of lessons in all those. What if I share them? What might happen if I connect with people who are equally open to sharing? And some of that includes monetary compensation, some of its ideas, some of its customers, but it all boils down to relationship. Mm. And also that, that what would happen, like I can't control whether you buy from me. I can't control whether you like me. I can't control whether you agree with me. I can't control whether, you know, what you do. I, I can't control any of those things or what you say. But what I can control is whether or not and how fully I show up, whether or not and how fully I show up and how much I'm prepared to give in that showing up. And that flip from, you know, from what I can't control to what I can control, how fully am I willing to show up here? 
you know, that to me is, you know, interesting, the parallels between your world and mine, you know, that to me is the fundamental question that lives behind all of influence, whether I am and how fully I am prepared to show up here. And I was just going to say, and I'd add in how curious you are about the other people who are showing up as well. Yes. Yes. All right. I want to, I want to just change tack here for a second. You know, you, there's a question that you asked and I think it's on the back cover of the book. I'm not quite sure where I read it, but I loved it. And it said, how many times have you given up on what you really want simply because you didn't know how to ask for it? And I think for the majority of us, the answer there is, is many, 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 many times. And it struck me that there's probably two parts to that. There's firstly determining what you really want. And I, and I see this happen a lot because I get to be on both sides of the negotiating table, right? Like I get to be the person that's negotiated with, with, with my team, with suppliers, with clients. And I also get to be, you know, the person who, who negotiates. And I'm amazed by how many times people actually don't know what they want. They'll turn up with a litany of all the things that they don't want. But if you ask them very clearly, what is it that you would like? What is it that you want? They can't tell you. What they want is just not, what I want is not those things, which just leaves us with a billion options to explore and I'm really, and no guidance on where to go. How do we, I call them clean requests and that's just my language. You know, I try and go to any conversation, any relationship negotiation with some clean requests. Here are my requests and it takes time to work those out how do you help people work out what they want what their clean requests are well it's really about it's a series of questions right i mean we ask ourselves why all the time which when when we ask ourselves why we put ourselves kind of stuck in the past we're 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 back kind of in something else and so we're really big on asking what might we do what we're, we're all about kind of exploring possibilities before we ever get to the negotiation table. Now, my experience is that 70 to 80% of my time is spent in preparing in, for negotiation. It's spent in this assessing phase because the more confident I am about what I know about myself or my clients um, and what we want versus what we need, because there's a big difference. People will often ask barely for what they need, end up with less than that, and then wonder why they're not successful. Because we, we just have this thing about asking for what we really want. And it's, you know, it's wrapped in a whole bunch of different fears. But it's really about, you know, what, what do you think you want? And then digging deeper around how if it's like, let's say, you know, there's concessions you're looking for in a negotiation for product or software or something. It's like, well, what, how are you going to use it? What are you going to use it for? Who's going to use it? When are they going to use it? Right. It, it's simple questions. How, what, when, where, and we can talk about why later. I'm not a huge fan of why, because it does stick people in negotiation in the past. And you can't make negotiation when somebody do a negotiation when somebody's stuck in the past. You can only do it when they're in the present. But it's, but it's how we have to dig into those questions. We have to be curious about ourselves as much as we are our counterparts. And that curiosity is something that we're not taught to explore. It's like, oh, I need, I need a thousand uh, licenses of Office 365. 
well, who, who's using Office 360? How are they using it? What are they using it for? When are they using it? Because it's a big agreement. What do you, what can you negotiate in that? Right. Um, and if you don't understand those questions, the how, the what, the when, the where, the who, then you, you can't negotiate. Uh, I had a client and also a friend who runs a machine shop and they manufacture really tiny parts for the space industry. So they have parts on the challenge on all the, on the challenger. They had them on all the shuttles, the international space station, perseverance, the Mars Rover, the whole nine yards. And they're little tiny things. They're just these just incredible what he does. And he does business with all the major big monolithic aerospace defense companies. And one of them sent him a contract. And they wanted him to produce X number of units. They wanted to be able to expedite it at their whim at no additional cost. They, he'd have to pay for the, the shipping costs, additional shipping costs. He'd have to store them and have inventory. It's like, do you do raw material and store that? Do you pay to have somebody manufacture it and store the finished goods? What do you do about resources? I mean, all these things. So we decided that the most appropriate strategy was simply to say no because we knew what we wanted. And so that's literally what we did. <laughs> it was like, no. I'm going to stop you there because there's, I don't know what, what stage his business is at, but I'm assuming there was some, some degree of fear in saying no, as there is with anybody who has a business, who has cash flow, who has, mm. um, even if you don't own your own business, has any kind of KPIs that you need to meet. The idea of, of saying a flat out no comes with a whole bunch of fears about what if I never get this opportunity again. How did you deal with his fear there? So he and I know each other very well. So with him, it was fairly easy, but you are correct. For most people, it's not. For most people, especially when you're talking revenue, it's, oh my God, if I ask for that, they're going to go away. If I ask for that price, they're going to say no and they're going to leave. Right. And that's, there's this huge fear around that. But the way that I say it is that and the way, what I believe is that no, except in sex, when no means no, no is an invitation to ask another question. No, rarely when somebody says flat out no, including us in that situation, we weren't necessarily saying no to 100 percent of what they were proposing, but there were elements of it because we knew what we wanted that we were saying no to. And that's what happens is that a lot of people hear no and they stop. When the next logical thing to do is to say, oh, okay, what specifically are you saying no to? And is that what happened? Exactly. And so when you went back, I'm just, I'm getting, I'm curious here. When you went back and said the no, what did that no sound like? Did it sound like a very polite one-line email that said, um, having, having explored your contract, we have to decline? Or was it a list of things that you were a no to? Like how much depth did you go into on your no? So I find that when I negotiate with really large organizations on behalf of small businesses, which is what I love David and Goliath negotiations. And so I do the, this is a common thing for me. Um, there are times when given the nature of the organization, given kind of how they've been trained, 
that simply typing N and O with a period after it is sufficient because, you know, I'll let, I'll say no, I've done, I've done this with a, a lot of big companies and usually the person on the other end of that email, they have an obligation because it's usually a procurement person or uh, somebody in risk management, maybe an attorney. They have an internal client. They have an internal customer that they have to answer to. So if I say no, right, if I say no and I offer nothing else and that client reaches and that procurement person reaches out to their, their internal client and said, they said no then their internal client's going to say, well, so what are you going to do about that? So I know that my saying no is not the end of the conversation, even if it is for the moment. Time is a strategic tool in negotiation. Time is an awesome thing to use as part of your strategy. So you can say no, and then you just sit and wait. It is amazing how uncomfortable my body feels right now. To As someone who, you know, call it British, call it whatever you like, someone who has been taught to be incredibly polite, um, I, I would have to say, you know, dear such and such, thank you for your interest and opportunity. Um, I have read your contract. And although I appreciate everything that you have done for me to date, I will have to respectfully decline on this occasion. Please stay in touch. Best wishes. You know, the, <laughs> and, and even when you were just saying the word and oh, full stop, I'm like, I literally feel my shoulders. <laughs> I saw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can just, I can feel I don't know who it is, my parents, my teacher, whoever, just like mentally slapping my hand in that moment, you know, and I would feel rude. I would feel very rude and like I was damaging the relationship in some way. So in, in all of these cases, in every case that I've done this, it's well into a conversation that has been happening. So we're not talking about that kind of a response when you're initiating a conversation. If you think about a relationship, it has a life cycle to it, right? And the negotiation part of the life cycle is just one piece of a long relationship, right? I've been married to my amazing husband for almost 30 years. And the deal that we negotiated at the beginning of our marriage is not entirely the same deal we have today because our lives have changed. We're different people. Kids are growing out of the house, right? But we treat our businesses as if, oh, I have a contract. Therefore, that is the contract. What? No, these were all relationships that existed before. So there was a relationship and we were, had been working with these individuals over time. So we knew each other. It wasn't, it wasn't like, it was just the first interaction. So we knew these, I, I knew these individuals. We had been on many, many conversations. We had hundreds of emails going back and forth and it just, they hit a, they hit a point where they they pushed up against a, a line that was just not we were not willing to cross. And the most ex, most expeditious way of dealing with it was simply to say no and then let them figure out what they were going to do to respond. I wasn't going to sit and negotiate against myself. I was going to wait for them to come back to me with, you know, 
And, and they did. They came back in every case. They come back and say, what do you mean? No, is usually the way that works. What do you mean? No. Right. My my internal customer is going to be really ticked off that you said no. And I'm like, well, I can't help that. But the answer is no. We've told you these things before or we've we've been over this multiple times. And, you know, what do you expect us to do in this situation? There's all sorts of things you can do. But there's there's power to that. Right. Like that that notion that no is a complete sentence. No is a complete sentence. Stop talking sit still, like claim your ground, own your ground, that there is incredible power to having no be, however uncomfortable it might feel, having no be a complete sentence in any relationship. Like, no, here is a line. Here is my boundary. You just met it. You face planted into it. And it's as strong as, as you thought it was going to be. And so therefore, how about, you know, you take a step back, I'll take a step back. Now you know where it is. And now we can keep talking if you want to, based on this. You know, there's, again, there's a gravity to that. Um, I want to go backwards a second with you. And, you know, you've negotiated billions of dollars worth of deals in the boardrooms of nearly half of the Fortune 500 companies. You've got an MBA from Harvard. And, and I think it would be really easy to to sit down if I were to say to sit someone sit down and write the plot line of your life that led to that moment I think most people would think that that would be a relatively simple thing to do and I know for myself I would have got it totally wrong and I think that most people would have got it completely wrong you know your your journey on this path started out very very differently you know you were a mother of three living on welfare and that's that's what brought you to this mastery that you went on to obtain in negotiation. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that experience led you to where you are now? Mm. It, it, is, it is the reason why I am where I am now and why I do what I do. Um, when I was 19, I w- found out I was pregnant and I just lost my job and I got evicted from the trailer that I was living in. And uh, I decided I couldn't make decisions for myself. I'd had a really promising high school career as all, all sorts of things, awards, the whole nine yards. Um, but then I made this, dis- then, then I found myself in this, this situation that at the time was, you know, a terrible situation to be in. And so clearly I'm not capable of making good decisions for myself. So I abdicated my power. I abdicated to a man who was more than happy to take on making all my decisions for me, what to wear, what to what food to have on the table, how to keep my house clean, who I could talk to, all of that stuff. Um, and you know, I had two more kids. I had three kids at the age of 22. And um, yet he couldn't afford to support us. And so we were doing our grocery shopping at food banks, um, taking donations from our church. Um, It it was just, it was a terrible situation. And I wanted to go back to, to, I wanted to go to college and he wouldn't let me. And I remember I asked one of my girlfriends, her name was Marie. I don't, we're not in contact anymore, but I asked, I was, I told Marie, I said, he won't let me go. And she said, well, how important is it to you? And I said, 
well, it's pretty important. She goes, no, how important is it to you? I said, well, it means everything to me. And she said, what's the worst thing he'll do if you go anyway? I said, I don't know. What do you mean? She said, well, will he kill you? I said, no, I don't think so. Then how important is it? And so I went to community college. I studied from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. because that was the only time that I could study safely. And uh, I earned a 4.0 GPA and earned a scholarship to a top engineering school in the northeastern part of the United States and realized it was going to be easier on my own than with him left him and became the first woman to graduate as a full-time student and a single mom at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York. And, um, and then that just kind of, I, I graduated cum laude, met my husband now, and then an opportunity arose for me to start working in international mergers and acquisitions. And I'll never forget when my CFO called me into the office and um, invited me is the best way to, to talk to say it to work in South Korea in 1994. And, and, you know, I think that one of the things that I love about the work that I get to do is you never know what somebody's story is. And we make all these assumptions about who's driving the Mercedes and living in the fancy house and has the, you know, the cufflinks and the this and the that. You don't know what they lived through. You, we just don't. And, and I love being able to connect with people at across just this broad range. I know what it's like to, to live in the back of my car with my, my, I had a cat named Athena and I was pregnant, right? I know what that's like. And I know what it's like to sit, you know, in a boardroom of HSBC bank, right? I mean, I know, I know those two worlds. I know those, those ends. And, and I think it just, it has, in order for me to move from living in the back of my car to where I'm at now, I had to learn how to ask. When I became a single mom and I was at Rensselaer, there, there were just, I remember I, I couldn't afford to pay a babysitter, but I just needed a day. I needed a night off. <laughs> and I was sitting next to this young guy, Daniel Seligman. And I asked him if he had ever got home cooked meals. And he's like, no. And I said, well, I can't pay you, but I'll cook you dinner. If you come and watch my kids for me, he became, he babysat my kids for two full years. And that's what he did over the summer while I did a summer job and we don't get, we truly don't get what we don't ask for. But if we don't know what we want and we don't know, I knew when I was living in the back of my car, I just quit living in the back of my car. And I met a woman who asked me to write down a goal. And she, she said, write down four goals and just pray on them every day. And the only goal I remember that I wrote down out of that four was that I was going to go to Harvard University. And 11 years after I wrote that goal down, my daughters walked in front of me on stage and got little teddy bears that said HBS for Harvard Business School. And I earned my MBA from Harvard Business School. And I am just full of goosebumps in this it, moment. You know, that asking that 
that willingness to acknowledge that I don't have all the answers. I don't need to have all the answers. I have this vision of every person that's ever lived on this planet carrying me through my life. I just have this vision that they carry me through life, that it's like this big giant mosh pit. And, and I'm in the mosh pit and they're tossing me around and some trouble comes up and I'm like, hey, one of you guys who's done this before, could you come give me a hand, please? And, and that works for me. And, um, and I am just so grateful for having gone through all of those trials and tribulations to be able to create a message around this topic of negotiation, which for me has so long been dominated by this competitive winning, it's war, it's about taking, it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's about tactics, it's about, no, none of it is. It's about a relationship and getting value out of your relationships. And for me, that's the premise of everything I do is how do we get more value out of the relationships that we have and the relationships we want. And I love how you like your your background, your journey, how uniquely it qualifies you in this, as you mentioned before, these kind of David and Goliath style negotiations, because, you know, that is a situation that is not rife with power. You know, a single mother who's who's struggling to feed her her three children that is not a situation that has a lot of power attached to it and yet you know you you would have learned the hard way and you would have road tested a number of different ways to ask for what you wanted and come against people who had a lot more power than you inherent in their situation what did you learn like what what were the key what were the, some of the key things anyone who's out there who feels like they're going has to have to go into a david versus, versus goliath style negotiation where you're the small guy or girl what did you learn what are the keys to those types of negotiation well the big thing is to stop and breathe and think right we there's always an alternative in the marketplace Nothing in business negotiations, it's very different than in life and death kind of hostage situations, right? That's a different kind of a negotiation. I'm completely ill-qualified to, to negotiate in that situation. I don't have that, that personality. I don't have that expertise. But in a business negotiation, rarely do we find ourselves in situations where there's not alternatives? Heck, even if Elon Musk didn't buy Twitter, if in the United States, Albertsons and Kroger can't merge in the, the uh, two huge, humongous grocery chains, um, you know, there's still alternatives in the market. It may require more steps. It may require a different approach. I mean, it, could require restructuring. I mean, it could require anything. But one of the, the challenges is that we get fixated on an outcome, right? We think that there's only one outcome and we define a negotiation by the deal being signed or the deal not being signed. That's a terrible metric to, to evaluate your effectiveness as a negotiation negotiator. In the United States, our courts are littered with deals that were signed and at one point considered good deals that turned out to be absolutely horrific 
negotiated relationships, right? And so, so if you are, if you are the David going to, to have a conversation with a Goliath, really understand who you are, what you want, where you're trying to go, what capabilities you have, what gaps you have, and how you want to fill them. Know, know who you are. Know your values before your value. Know your values before your value. Because if you know your values, then nothing that happens in that conversation is going to take you away from, from that. And you'll start to use it as, as, a, as a metric to go, oh, this is the wrong deal for me. And then spend time getting curious about your counterpart. Even if you are a small player, right, you can craft deals that appeal to the strategic direction of, of a bigger organization. Or maybe that super monolithic organization isn't the right deal for you. And maybe working with somebody who's one or two steps above where you're at in business is a better option for you because you can grow together, right? You've got, I mean, the biggest thing that messes up negotiations is always ego. The ego has got to be put aside to, and, and if you, and if you're somebody like me who at one time that was really hard that I, I wanted to see the negotiation as competitive, I paid the price of seeing negotiations as competitive. I lost relationships. I was at early in my career, um, you know, after not so much really early when I was hungry and learning, but then I kind of hit this, you know, where I, I was kind of the, the thing I was like the person. And then I got, then I got arrogant about what I was doing and I got, I got kicked down a peg or two or three. And I'm so grateful I did, <laughs> you know, I I've recovered from that and have grown immensely. And, you know, you've got to put your ego to the side. And if you're somebody who can't do that, then I'll, I'll tell you right now, you're not the right person to negotiate that deal. If you cannot put your ego aside, you need some, somebody else to step in and negotiate that deal because you will screw it up. How do you define, define ego for me in that moment? Because I think we understand the word ego in many different ways, right? We, ego is arrogance. Ego is a sense of identity. Ego is attachment. Ego is... So when you're talking specifically about negotiation, what's your frame of reference for the word ego? So it's really kind of, um, it's the, we have to do this deal. It's the, I'm the only person who can do this deal. It's, um, it's my way or the highway kind of thing. It's, um, you know, it, it's, this is the only alternative. It's anytime, anytime I hear somebody speaking in superlatives in most best, worst, least, more, Anytime I hear superlatives, my alarm bells go off because if somebody's talking in those terms, it means that they, they have attached themselves to the outcome of that deal. They've, they're no longer curious about what the possibilities could be. They're done exploring. Now in a negotiation, there does come a time where you're done exploring and you make decisions, but acknowledge that, oh, we're in decision-making mode now. But so somebody's talking in superlatives, that's almost, that, that's usually a dead giveaway that, that there's a massive amount of ego involved in that. How do you deal with, or have you learned to deal with other people's egos? I'm going to use the word 
bullies now and I think you know as a term that can be massively underexplored and lack a bit of the cliche lacks a bit of depth but we've all had moments where we go into a room negotiate and we get railroaded talked over um diminished um shouted at shut down how do you deal because you specialize I think in those moments you know from a from what you have learned and where and what you have been through and also your skills and talents I feel like you're the person I'd want to have next to me in those moments how have you learned to deal with them do you shut the whole conversation down leave the room I'm assuming you you now no longer go into battle in those moments what do you do so it does depend. It depends on the person that I'm negotiating with and how far into the conversation we are and what kind of relationship I have. But I'm really, one of my master skills is using questions to deflect. So usually if somebody is being a bully, there's a very tiny percentage of negotiators who actually are bullies, who actually get joy from annihilating their counterparts. I've negotiated with some of them. Um, they are not fun to negotiate. And as soon as I said those words, somebody came into your mind because you got a little smile on your face. And, <laughs> and, and you say that on my face. <laughs> and and that's and that's true for everybody who's listening to that. As soon as I said those words, you know who I'm talking about. You know somebody who fits that description. The problem is is that we've kind of created this, we've romanticized this image of the negotiator who goes in and takes it all and wins it all and, you know, gets to be an asshole and we forgive them. We like having an asshole because, you know, we, we got, we had to have a, somebody to, you know, have an, as an enemy there, there were, you know, Elon. Oh, that's, that's right? how we get wartime presidents, right? It, or wartime it, prime ministers. Exactly. And that's where the, the strategy and the tactic of making a situation sound like war means that we end up with leaders who in certain times and situations are not, not best suited to what's required. Exactly. And, you know, so what I do is the thing that I've developed a master skill in is using questions to determine, is this person really a bully? If yes, then I have to decide with my clients, do you want to do business with a bully? Right go into it knowing what you, right? Um, or is this person behaving out of a fear or trauma response themselves? Has something happened in our conversation that activated their fight or flight mode, right? And, and so that, then I'm using questions to explore more deeply what, what just happened. And depending on the level of my relationship with that individual, it could be as direct as, oh, I, I sense that I just said something or that you're not reacting very well to what just happened. Do you want to take a break? Do you want to talk about it? Um, you know, and then we kind of move on from there. Sometimes I will, I'll see it and then I'll, I'll say, okay, let's change directions and bring up a completely unrelated topic and move into a different direction and we'll table that. And sometimes I'll be direct and say, let's just table that for right now. My, and, and I'll take it on me. I'll say, you know, I'm thinking that I, I'm not really excited about how I said that or 
how that came across and I can't find the right words right now. So is it okay if we just come back to that one? Right. Oh, can I just, can I, can I put a pin in that and just go there for a second? Because again, there's a, there's a lot in what you just said, you know, there's, there's a humility, which I think when you, when you show a level of humility in a room or in a relationship, it opens the doors to a reconnect. Um, there's also a, a willingness to say, I don't know if I did that right. I don't know if I did my intention justice. I don't know if I did this relationship justice in the way that I just worded that. And I want to find the right words. I don't have them right now, but I am committed enough to what I want to build with you that I'm going to go away. I'm going to, I'm going to own that. And I'm going to go away. I'm going to find them and I'm going to come back. You know, there's, it's disarming and reconnecting and it, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things in what you just did. And I want to underline it because I think often we feel when we feel like we've used the wrong words and I had a situation just, was it this week? I think it was this week where I realized that I had used the wrong words in, in a negotiation and I had to, I had to own it. I had to, but I could feel the other person getting activated and I could feel their energy rising and I could feel that they had reached a point where they were no longer listening, that they were just reacting to what I had said and they had started to spiral. And I had to pull myself back and go, you know what, I don't think that, I don't think that what I was trying to express there came out right. I don't feel like the words I used did justice to my intention or for what I even wanted to say. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, as you said, I didn't use the word, let me, can we park that? I love that phrase. Can we park that? I just said, look, you know, just talk to me, you know, what's, what's happening for you right now? Because I know that it isn't what I wanted for you and it isn't what I wanted for this conversation. Um, and it's not what I want for us. So walk me through it. And again, there's so much repair or foundation that happens in a relationship in those moments. Absolutely. And I love that you did that. I think that if I find that taking like I, it is the worst thing that I could ever do in a negotiation is look to the other person and look at their reaction and go, Oh, well you're mad or you're this or anything like that versus my going, what reaction was, what, what reaction was I hoping to achieve? Right. And did they react in a way that I expected them to react? Oh, dang it. They did not Oh, did I mean for them to react that way? That's not how I meant for them to react. Oh, I screwed up. Right. And that willingness to, to take ownership and to say, I'm sorry, I, I did not mean for that to come out that way. Um, et cetera, those, those kind of things go so far. Like I've had people who literally have come to me and said, Christine, oh my God, we love working with you. My boss has said, there's absolutely no way we can do this thing that you and I talked about doing. And it's like, okay, well, what, what, what will your boss let us do? Right. And, but it, because part of influence, right? Because negotiation is simply influencing. And it's like, if I can, if I can create a relationship with the person I'm negotiating with so that we're side by side problem solving, and they go to be an advocate for what I'm trying to do for my client, 
oh my gosh, what better solution can I have? There's no better situation. I'm no longer negotiating. They're negotiating on my behalf, right? And coming back and telling me honestly that that crosses a line for us. We can't, I, I wish we could, but we can't do it. Right. And, you know, there's a difference between somebody who's saying that to BS you and somebody who's legitimately working to find a solution with you. Right. And getting to that point where you, where, where we're collaboratively um, problem solving to create a better outcome for both of us is, it's just an incredible place to be. What would you recommend in moments? And again, I think we've all had a number of them where you go into a negotiation and everything that comes out of your mouth appears to get that spiraled response, you know, where you're literally, you you feel like you're walking on eggshells. Everything that you put out gets an explosion or, you know, leads to an unhealthy place. Are those the times when we pull back and go, actually, is this a relationship that I want to, that I want to be a part of? you know, rather than continually tap dancing around the landmines of a conversation? There, it's one of two things, either as, you know, for my, for my clients, either they need to make a decision whether they want to be um, in a relationship with this volatile character. Um, is it the person? Is it the company culture? Right? Because that it may just be the person. That's a different issue. Versus if it's company culture, then these guys are going to be big pains in the neck to deal with once the deal's signed. Because if you're in a really difficult negotiation where people are treating you poorly, trust me, after the deal is signed, they will treat you worse. I was in a negotiation with a large um, professional services firm and um, my client was a tech client and they had a contractor who was their lead negotiator and he was super aggressive and very he was very angry at the world and he swore all the time. He was, he would never pick up the phone. He would only scream at you in all caps in incredibly long emails that nobody ever read. It, it was just like really, it was really painful and he would not come to the table. And so I found out that we had some common, now I, I only, I actually would do this again, but only if with the permission of my client, I did not actively seek permission from my client. So if you ever attempt this strategy, make sure you have all the right people in, included in the decision to execute the strategy because it was effective. We were getting nowhere. It was months of trying to get him to come to the table and we needed to get something done. And so I found out that we had some common people in contact, common contacts. He was in the UK. I've done a lot of work in the UK. And so I reached out to them. I said, can you tell me about so-and-so? What, what should I know about him? We're in the middle of a deal and, and I'm, I'm having some difficulties. I'm trying to get a little bit of more knowledge about him. Universally to a person, the response was, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You have to deal with him. That was universally the response. <laughs> A hundred percent. And so he sent this rip roaring, crazy, awful, expletive filled diatribe, calling me names, calling my boss's names, my client's names. And so I sent him a one sentence response back. And I said, it's good to know that our mutual acquaintances are right about you. Now, 
we couldn't get him to the table. Absolutely nothing is work was working. Now I'm from North Central Montana in the tiny town, and I definitely stepped on the rattlesnake. Hence the colloquial. I definitely stepped on the head of the rattlesnake. By the next morning, he had written and made phone calls to the chairman of the board, the CEO, the CFO, and the chief legal counsel. And guess what that meant? We finally had him at the table. He finally engaged. Now, but did you have him at the table in a way that you wanted him at the table? Yeah, actually, it was clear that he was never going to negotiate with me. And so I gave him a very specific reason to kick me out of the room. Now, I was never actually out of the room. So this was before we did a lot of negotiation on um, video conference. So we were on audio conference. And so the chief legal counsel became the lead negotiator in quotes. And I'd sit in the room and I'm hitting mute saying, say this, say this, do this, do this. So I'm directing the whole negotiation. I'm just not the voice that's speaking because there was no way that I was going to be the right voice to speak, whether it was in a text or in an email or on the phone, it wasn't going to matter. There was nothing about the situation that was going to be effective for the two of us. Now, truly, the only thing that was terribly ineffective about that is it didn't warn my C the CEO and the CFO that I was going to execute that strategy, but it worked. We had a deal three weeks later, right? So it did what we needed it to do. And sometimes, sometimes we have to do things in a negotiation that seem counterintuitive. We have to take that risk. And how do I, how do I build a relationship when somebody doesn't want to build one at all? What do I, what do I do? Well, maybe I'm not the right person to build it. Maybe getting a stronger response. There's a book, um, an author named Jim Camp who talks about the power of no, and, um, maybe getting a stronger response, a really emotional response when you, in the absence of being able to do something else can move a conversation forward when you think that it won't. What I'm also taking from that is that the, the acknowledgement that sometimes I'm not the right person to have this conversation. And I know that there are many negotiations in my career history that I can tell you for a fact, I went in to do it by myself and I would have been far better off getting somebody to go in there and speak for me getting another voice that didn't have the same associations, attachments, dynamics, history to go in there and cleanly, cleanly run that as opposed to putting myself and that relationship in that situation. So, you know, the, you are not always the best person to be having these conversations. Mm, definitely not. And, and part of being, Effective is knowing when you are not the right person. And, you know, to be honest, like most CEOs and founders should not be negotiating. They hate, they hate it when I say that, but they're so emotionally attached to the outcomes of decisions in a very different way than somebody who's, you know, at a different level in the organization and doesn't have the same outcomes. Founders are often it's i mean there are exceptions but often the 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 challenges that they have they're just it's their babies it's really hard to negotiate when you have given your blood sweat tears 
mornings, nights, weekends for the last X amount of time to building this thing and you want it to be right. You want it to be perfect, but relationships are messy. Relationships are never right. They're never perfect. They're always messy. And I don't care if you've got a contract or not. And also to, you know, to speak to the speak on behalf of the founders, when you are a founder or, or let's just say a leader in any capacity, but especially a founder, everything runs from your energy field everything you know your team runs from your energy field the opportunities you attract runs from your energy field if you have a family that runs from your energy field you know your your number one responsibility is keeping your energy and your vibration as high as it can be because it feeds all things and when you get embroiled in a long and protracted and potentially hostile negotiation it's a leak you cannot afford not only are you not the best qualified to do it, but it's just a leak you cannot afford. And to send somebody else in there on your behalf means that you can keep your energy where it needs to be to do the positive things and to attract what you're looking for as opposed to arguing about what you don't have, which is a leak. Mm -hmm. Well, and you raise a, a part of what you said there is it, when we are the founders, we tend to think it's very hard for us not to think of, okay, this is what I have and they're coming to take it, right? It's really hard for us not to. So we end up being in a scarcity mindset and we also lose a very pragmatic tool in negotiation, which is an escalation path. No matter who else, it's rare that you might have a founder negotiating with another founder, but if you're a founder negotiating with a company that's even just slightly larger than you, you're probably not negotiating with an equal. You're negotiating with somebody at a lower level in the organization because now they have an escalation path. They can sit and they can build that relationship and they can go, well, I agree in principle, but it's not my decision, right? And unless you've done a really good job or effective job co-opting them to become your advocate, you're not necessarily going to have them advocating for the deal. And so it, there's a reason why founders need help in the negotiation arena, because they're generally not the right people from an energy level, from an escalation path level. And so it's, you know, it's, and it's a mistake that I see a lot of founders make. And there is a lot of power to, to be able to escalate to for someone to be able to say you know what i i completely get you sounds really reasonable i just don't think i'm going to get a yes like i've got to take this up the chain and i've got to get a yes when you know you're speaking to the decision maker they don't get to say i just don't think this is going to fly i don't think because you're like well it's you so <laughs> either you agree or you don't whereas you know there is a lot to be gained by saying look you know if you want me to take this further you're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to find a more equitable way of doing this because I can't take it further like this. There's, there's a lot of power in that position. Yeah. If you're a founder at minimum, have an advisory board. I don't care if your advisory board is your cat or your partner. I don't care, but you want to have a policy, a stated policy, a written policy in your company that deals over a certain size have to be evaluated and commented on by your advisory board. If you don't have a, like a formal board of directors, don't BS somebody and say that you do, but definitely set up an advisory board. So you can sit and say, 
look, I, I don't necessarily need their approval, but I have a group of advisors that I have committed to bring deals like this to, to get their insights and input. Our next meeting is on such and such, and I'll let you know the outcome. I love that. That is a genius tool. It's so, it's so powerful. One, it escalates, it elevates how you are seen by your counterpart. Oh, wow. You have an advisory board. Maybe I don't need, do I need an advisory board? Maybe, maybe I need an advisory board. Oh, they have an advisory board. Wow. They're taking this deal to the advisory board. This deal must be important, right? Oh, this is a big deal. Okay. Now I feel better. And now if I'm a big company, if I'm the Goliath, I'm like, oh, now they've got structure. They have process. They have credibility, right? Doing that one little thing does a lot to elevate your position in a negotiation. It's a very sim simple, simple, simple thing. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you my final question now. And, and I don't know who it was from your team who sent me an email prior to us talking, but there, there was, I was reading through the emails and there was a line in one of the emails that says, um, her favorite quote, i.e. your favorite quote is the toughest negotiation that happens between our ears, which I loved. And, you know, what, what's the biggest flip for anyone who's, who knows that there's a negotiation coming either in their personal lives, their professional lives, their parenting, um, what's the biggest flip we need to make between our own ears to go in and get the best outcome possible for everybody involved? Fall in love with your emotions fall in love with them, all of them, the good ones, the ones that make us feel icky, get comfortable in those things, sitting in them and so that they don't control you so that you're not reacting out of them. That, that one thing, God, if everybody could just, yeah, this is my, this is my Pollyanna view. If everyone could just get comfortable sitting in their feelings and not reacting. So if you're in a negotiation and you'll, and sometimes you won't even know you're in a negotiation, but if you start to feel yourself go hide under a blanket, if you are going to get angry, if you feel like throwing something, if you know what you are, there's probably a negotiation going on and you don't even realize it. And somebody just pushed your button. And what caused that? Get really okay with your emotions, because if you can do that, because that's what happens in our ears, in between our ears is the emotion. This part, that, that, if you can figure that part out and it's a journey, it's a lifelong thing. It's not an everyday thing. It's an, oh, cr I didn't, I recognize that I didn't do that today. Oh, I did that today. Right. But get comfortable naming and labeling your emotions and sitting with them. It's been such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much, Christine. It's been great to have you on. And um, yeah, I know you have another book coming out next year. I do. How You Ask Matters. I'm very excited about it. Okay. I'm not going to ask you for any spoilers. Let's, let's talk again next year. All right. I love it. I love it. What an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. 
You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.